our one defense and our righteousness that he is. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer before we look to his word. Pray with me. Our Father, we come needy and weak, and we come hopeful and expectant because of your Son, because of his perfect life lived for us, because of his blood shed to pay and atone for our sin. So we ask, Father, that you would show yourself to be good and merciful and gracious and faithful to us yet again today as we look to your word. Come and pour your spirit out upon us that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear and have hearts that would love and receive your truth. We pray that you would teach us more of yourself, teach us more about ourselves, and show us Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing on in this sermon series through the book of Genesis. We are in the 16th of 22 messages, at least as it's planned. So we are getting on through this thing. It's always amazing to me how quick these series can go. And I'm always somewhat grieved when we come to the end of a book of the Bible, but then when we go into the next one, I'm always joyful for what's in it. I know for many people in the room, this is the first time that you maybe have sat under or sat through a sermon series in the book of Genesis. And a number of you have commented to me that that's true. I, for one, have been greatly encouraged by this book of God's word. And I hope that you have been. Every week I'm struck by God's covenant love for his people. Every week I'm struck by how deep and how great his grace is to us. And I'm struck every week, frankly, by how Christ is all over this book. And our text today is no exception. I think all of those things will come through clearly. At least we pray so. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking today at Genesis chapter 30 and verse 25 through chapter 33 and verse 20. It's a decent sized passage, as you know already, because it was read in your midst this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up and you'll be helped, I'm sure, to follow along with the narrative and with what goes on. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat that. We'll try to get the words to the passage on the screen as I refer to them. And my plan for today, as has been the case with a number of these big sections of narrative, I want to try to survey the passage and give us a sense of it, help us to understand it. I'm going to try to do that in four points. And inevitably, we'll reflect some and apply some as we go. And then at the end, as we've done a few times in this series, I want to offer a couple of extended reflections, a couple of extended meditations for our time together this morning. So four points two reflections. We'll begin with point number one. The Lord prospers and protects Jacob. The Lord prospers and protects Jacob. We'll look at chapter 30 and verse 25 through the end of chapter 31. So just surveying this passage for us. I don't want to labor it too much, but I want us to have a good sense of everything that goes down. So Jacob desires, after Joseph is born to Rachel, he desires to go back to his home country. He desires to go back to the land of Canaan. So he approaches Laban, his father-in-law, about that. Laban, though, wants Jacob to stay. He wants Jacob to stay in particular because he sees that God has prospered him on account of Jacob. And so he essentially says to Jacob, name your price. Tell me what it's going to take to keep you in town. Jacob then suggests this idea about the livestock. His wages, he says, will be 
all the livestock with markings on them or multiple colors, right? So spots or speckles or you know, sheep that would have had some black mixed in their coat, things like that. That would have been his wage. All the goats that were speckled, spotted, or had white on them are removed from the flock as well as the lambs, the sheep that had black on them. And the two portions of the herds are separated by three days' journeys, like 60 miles. I mean, this is a ways. Jacob tends the larger portion of Laban's flock, the non-speckled, non-spotted part. And then Laban's sons are tending the rest. So through all of this business with sticks and peeling off streaks and exposing the white part of the sticks, and so the sticks are striped and spotted and multicolored themselves, and placing those sticks in front of the flocks when they were breeding, we are told that Jacob's portion greatly increased and that Laban's portion thereby decreased proportionately so. Suffice it to say that this is all supernatural. This is the work of God. I mean, if you're questioning that even, look at chapter 31 and verse 12, where the angel of God tells Jacob that he is the one behind all of this. He says, the reason why this is going down this way and all these spotted and speckled and striped sheep and everything are being born is because of me. I've seen what's going on and how Laban has treated you. So God is using these sticks in order to bless Jacob. Now, that should not surprise us. God often uses physical things to convey and communicate his blessing. There was nothing extraordinary about the sticks, but God's blessing to Jacob was attached to them. Now, that should sound familiar to us. God often does this. I mean, think, for example, when Jesus was on earth and healed the eyes of a blind man. He didn't just speak it. He makes mud puts it on the man's eyes and heals him. And the Lord, even in our context as we sit today, has given us physical things that convey his grace and blessing to us as we receive them in faith. They're called the sacraments. He has given us the waters of baptism, which we will observe in God's providence today. And he has given us the cup and the bread of the Lord's Supper. As we make our way into chapter 31, so at the End there of chapter 30, transitioning into chapter 31. Six years go by. Jacob is tending the flocks of Laban for six years. As a result of all of his work and as a result of all this stuff with the sticks and God's provision for Jacob, Laban's sons were accusing Jacob of effectively stealing from their dad. Jacob's aware that Laban is upset about how everything's going down and that Laban certainly does not favor him like he did a few years ago. And then the Lord, we're told, in the early verses of chapter 31, tells Jacob to go ahead and return to the land of his kindred and that he will be with him. So in other words, it's time to go. So Jacob calls Leah and Rachel to him out in the field, away from where everybody could hear. And these two women are the daughters of Laban, Jacob's wives. And he talks to them about the whole situation. He begins by acknowledging that there's there's tension between me and your dad. It's not going well, right? And then he recounts to them... Everything that he's done, how he has tried to serve Laban faithfully and how Laban has always in turn just sought to do him wrong. He recounts for them how the Lord has provided for him and protected him and even for them through him. In spite of everything that Laban has conspired to do. He also tells them of one time that the angel of God spoke to him. 
He says the angel of God told him that he saw all that Laban was doing. And the angel of God makes it clear to Jacob that he's the one who has been causing all of these strange reproductive patterns amongst the flocks. Just one brief but significant observation here. We've thought about this before. Whenever we see the angel of the Lord or the angel of God show up and start talking and referring to himself as the Lord as well, like I in the first person, we should understand that to be the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, speaking to human beings. That's the case here. Notice how God the Son is involved in the life of Jacob, providing, protecting, watching over him. Notice how in verse 13 of chapter 31, God the Son identifies himself as the God of Bethel. You remember we thought about this recently, how God manifested his presence there, descended and spoke to Jacob there. And Jacob named the place Bethel, the house of God, the city of God. God the Son, the angel of God says, that was me that showed up there. He instructs Jacob to return to his homeland and promises to be with him. Saints, it's a sweet thing to be reminded that all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are personally involved in our lives. And all three persons of the Godhead are in unison personally working out our redemption. So, as we get back to the text, Rachel and Leah are with Jacob in all this. They're tracking. They say to him, hey, look, dad hadn't done right by us either. You know, they see that God has been the one that's provided for them and for their kids. And so they tell Jacob, verse 16 of chapter 31, hey, whatever God has said to you, do it. So then while Laban is away shearing his sheep, which would have been quite an undertaking, large herd, shearing all of that flock, right, would have taken days, no doubt, to do. While Laban's away, Jacob packs up the whole household and flees, skips town. And then in all of this, just kind of in passing, we're told that Rachel takes her father's household gods with her. So Laban, of course, is going to hear about all this. Can't keep this hidden for long, right? This big company of people's gone with all that they have. He hears about it. He gathers his kinsmen and pursues Jacob, tracks the dude for seven days, we're told. God comes to Laban in the midst of that span of time at some point and says to him, don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So God is coming to Jacob's defense again. Laban and his posse eventually overtake Jacob and his household. And Laban confronts Jacob. Like, why did you do it this way, man? Why did you do this to me? And then he kind of waxes eloquent about all these wonderful things that he would have done had he known to send them off. And if you've been tracking through this series, you're kind of like, yeah, I don't know that you'd have done that. You're not the most upright dude. Nonetheless, he kind of paints this picture. He sings a sad song and he says, look, Jacob, it's in my power to harm you, but God told me not to. And I realize, you know, you want to go home. You want to go back to your father's house. But hey, man, like, why did you steal my gods? You know, it's an interesting interchange. In all of this, as I say, Laban depicts himself as a loving, sort of upright guy. And I don't know that I'm sold. I don't know if you are either. Jacob then tells Laban that he was afraid that Laban would take his daughters from him by force. Now, in fairness, that seems a little hyperbolic, even with everything that Laban has done. But then he does say that if anyone of his household has taken Laban's gods, he's like, that person will die. And of course, he doesn't know that Rachel is the one that's taken the gods. 
He then says that anything that his family that has taken that belongs to Laban, Laban can have it. And then there's a search for the gods, and Rachel is clever in hiding them. It's all kind of humorous in the way that that goes down. And just a brief observation, this is far from the point, but you know, Laban and his household gods and all this business, I think it's pretty clear that if your gods can be stolen, you may as well sell them and pocket the cash because they're pretty worthless as gods, right? Jacob then is going to rebuke Laban, though, after all of this wild interchange is going down. He's going to rebuke him and say, look, man, I have tried to do right by you for 20 years. I served you 14 years in exchange for marrying your daughters. I served you for another six years pastoring your flocks. And he says, but if it weren't for the Lord and the Lord's intervention, you would have sent me away with absolutely nothing, which is probably true. Laban, of course, doesn't see it that way. But nonetheless, he suggests that he and Jacob make a covenant, and so they do. Jacob is going to do right by Laban's daughters, and Jacob and Laban are not to do harm to one another. There is a sacrifice, there's a meal, and the next morning Laban departs and returns home. That brings us all the way to the end of chapter 31. So now we're going to move our way into point number two of the narrative for today. Jacob fears Esau. Jacob is afraid of Esau. We're going to look at chapter 32, verses 1 to 21. So Jacob is going to continue on his journey. And we're told in verse 1 of chapter 32 that the angels of God meet with him. So we trust that the angels of God have been watching over Jacob this whole time, as they do all the saints. I was talking with Mackenzie and some others this week about the fact that a lot of times when I read scripture, I'm, I'm convicted and challenged by things. And I don't think I do enough justice to what the scripture even reveals as to how the angels of God serve him all the time and how the angels of God even work on our behalf all the time. This is evidence even of that, that the angels of God are ministering to Jacob. In verses 3 to 8 of chapter 32, Jacob and his household, it seems, are going to pass through or at least near where Esau and his descendants, his family, are living. And so Jacob is going to send some messengers to his brother. You guys remember the situation, right? There's an estranged relationship here. 20 years prior, the last time they had spoken or seen each other, it did not go well. This is when Jacob had cheated Esau out of his birthright and all of that stuff. And Esau says, I'm going to kill him once dad dies. I'm going to kill my brother. And so then Rebecca, if you remember, had to send Jacob out of town so as to defuse the situation and to protect him. That's the last time the two brothers spoke, saw each other. So Jacob sends messengers to Esau. They are to update Esau about Jacob, about how well he's doing, about how much stuff he has, and to indicate that Jacob seeks to find favor in his brother's sight. And it seems that in Jacob's mind, he is kind of attempting to repay Esau in some way, right? Like, look, bro, I realize I stole your birthright, but I've, I've done well for myself. I've got some stuff. I'm happy to give it to you to try to make up for what I took from you. Seems like what's going on here. The messengers return and tell Jacob that Esau is going to come to meet him. Hey, bro, he's rolling with about 400 dudes. And rightly, understandably, right, Jacob is like, that's not good. I'm distressed. I'm a little bit fearful here of how this is going to go down. He divides, therefore, his household into two camps of people. And his thinking is that worst case, if Esau comes and just wrecks shop, if we're divided into two camps, he can't kill all of us. 
and some of us will survive. Then in verses 9 to 12, Jacob goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 9, he addresses God. In verse 10, he acknowledges the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness and how unworthy he is of all that the Lord has done for him. In verse 11, he asks that the Lord would deliver him from Esau, and he's honest with God about his fear. Verse 12, he petitions the Lord on the basis of what God had promised him. He's calling to mind the promises of God and praying on that basis. Then, as the narrative continues to unfold in verses 13 and following, Jacob comes up with a plan as to how he might appease Esau. Jacob is always scheming, is he not? He's always plotting. So he pulls together a large gift, and what he's going to do is arrange people in the text. It says he arranges them in droves, but you understand what this is. He puts people in groups and gives them a portion of the gift, and he's going to send them in waves to Esau. And each time a group of people is going to show up bearing gifts, and they have a certain thing that they're to say. They are to greet Esau and tell him again of how Jacob seeks to find favor in his sight and all these things. Here's this gift for you. And oh, by the way, Jacob's behind us. He's coming. This is going to happen repeatedly. And the thought process is that Esau, by the time this whole thing, this whole parade has ended, will be appeased. So Jacob sends out the droves. He stays the night at the camp. Before we move on, just really briefly think about this. See yourself in this. I see myself here anyway. When it comes to Jacob in this account, note the mixed nature of, of things. The mixed nature even of what's going on in Jacob's heart and mind. He goes to the Lord in prayer, and it seems sincere. He says some good stuff. He's claiming promises. It's upright. And at the same time, he is still plotting and scheming, right? And it's not just one of those like common sense things. Like, you know, I say to people all the time, you know, we trust in God's providence. And when you leave here today, I assume you're going to put your seatbelt on in your car. This is not that kind of thing. This is on the one hand, I'm trusting the Lord. And then on the other hand, I literally am trying to take these matters into my own hands and handle this through plotting and scheming. He does not, Jacob, This is going to be one of those kind of like if you can't say amen, say ouch kind of moments, right? Coming up. He does not take the courageous, humble, forthright route, which would have been him going himself to just talk to his brother. In other words, he's kind of like we are now. Nothing's changed. Ain't nothing new under the sun, right? People rarely go directly to a person that there is a grievance with and just talk about it. Like that, why would we ever do that? Now, we'd rather just play games, scheme, assume terrible things in other people. It's what we do. Even in that inconsistency in Jacob, we see a depiction of ourselves. One minute we trust God. We're praying to the Lord. The next minute, we're back to relying on our own strength and understanding. May God have grace upon sinners like us and like Jacob. This moves us now to our third point in the narrative. Point number three, Jacob wrestles with God. This is obviously the most well-known portion of this passage. I'm excited to get here. Just heads up. We're going to briefly survey it. We're going to reflect on it later. So just kind of hold your excitement for a moment. 
Jacob wrestles with God. This is verses 22 to 32 of chapter 32. So that same night, we're told, Jacob takes his wives, his children, everything else he has, and takes them across this stream, this river called the Javan. He's going to put them on the other side of the water from the direction Esau is coming. Then he himself is left alone where they had camped. Then we're told it is at this point that a man wrestles with God, or excuse me, wrestles with Jacob, sorry, until dawn. A man shows up, wrestles with Jacob until the morning. So this is another one of those times where we have a theophany occurring, where God is manifesting himself in human form. God in human form wrestles with Jacob all night long. Limiting himself, he is not going to beat Jacob, not going to defeat him. He is going to put Jacob's hip out of joint, but he doesn't defeat him. The man, as he's described, tells Jacob to let him go once dawn breaks. And Jacob responds, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. It seems that Jacob has some kind of sense that this is not a normal man. This is no mere man to say something like that. The man asks Jacob what his name is. And Jacob tells him. Then the man says, your name is no longer going to be Jacob, but Israel. Israel means he strives. Because, the man says, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob asks, well, hey, please tell me your name. And the man responds in a very fitting way. Why is it that you ask my name? Kind of rings of Jesus, you know, when the rich young ruler comes to him, says, hey, good teacher. And he's like, why do you call me good? And he blesses Jacob. Jacob names the place Peniel because he says that he has seen God face to face and yet his life was spared. So he understands, at least at the end of this whole thing, that I just saw God face to face and didn't die. And then we're given this little note about the significance of this event, even to the people of Israel and their eating habits. It's a remarkable account, and we're going to come back to it. We're going to spend some time reflecting on it together. This brings us to point number four of our narrative. Point four, Jacob and Esau meet. Jacob and Esau meet. You could even say Jacob and Esau reconcile. Point four, chapter 33, verses 1 to 20. Let's survey these verses briefly. So keep in mind, Jacob has literally just wrestled with God in the flesh all night. I mean, quite a night, I would imagine. And then the way the text is written, it's like immediately upon all of that, he lifts his eyes to see Esau rolling up with 400 people. He arranges his family, we're told. He's going to, with his wives and their children, he arranges them and then he goes before them. At least he's doing that this time. He's going in front to meet his brother. He bows seven times trying to show his brother honor. We're not sure. I mean, if you had never read this story before, put yourself there and you're like, how's this going to go? And then we're told, but Esau ran to Jacob, embraced him, fell on his neck, kisses him, and they cry together. They weep together. It's quite a moment, you know. Remember, like we've talked about already, what had happened 20 years prior. And the two had not seen each other since then. God's grace is all over this. It's all over this moment of reconciliation. 
God's grace is evident to Jacob as the one through whom God's promises would come. No harm is going to come to him in this. That's grace. We understand why at a human level Esau would have wanted to hurt him. But God doesn't allow that. There's God's grace to Esau in softening his heart toward his brother. That's grace. There's God's grace to Jacob as well because Jacob has been greatly humbled over the course of years. God has seen to that. And there is clearly God's grace to both men in the reconciliation of a broken relationship. It's grace. Esau is thrilled to meet Jacob's family. Who is this that you got with you? He says. He then asks Jacob, Later on, he's going to go, hey, bro, what what was up with this whole parade you sent my direction? This whole thing, these companies of people and all these gifts, what's up with that? And Jacob tells him, yeah, well, I was trying to find favor in your sight. I was hoping that it would just help us bury the hatchet, smooth things over. And Esau responds effectively like, hey, bro, like, keep what you have. I've got enough. It's just great to see you. It's a remarkable, remarkable moment. Jacob insists that Esau take the gift, though, because Jacob is humbled and grateful that Esau has accepted him. And Jacob reiterates, look, God has been gracious to me. I've got plenty. So please take this gift, which Esau does. Esau even suggests that they journey together. And Jacob kindly declines that. Jacob is going to travel on to Succoth and eventually to the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan. This is the second time that we're going to see a descendant of Abraham purchased land in Canaan. That occurs. He purchases a piece of land and builds an altar there. So we see even in that, the son of Abraham owning now a piece of the promised land. We see the continuing unfolding of the promises of God. The promises of God advance yet again. God has given Jacob children and possessions and has now brought him safely back into the land of promise. So that's the narrative. That's what happened in the text today, which brings us now to the time when we're going to reflect together on some things that I think are quite clear that flow out of the text that I pray impact us as we think about God, as we think about ourselves and our sin, as we think about God's grace and his ways with us and how he saves sinners such as you and me. First reflection, I really don't have a good heading for this. I just want us to think about Jacob. I just want us to think about Jacob. There's a lot of ink spilled on this dude's life in the scripture. There's 10 chapters here in Genesis. I mean, there is as much ink spilled on Jacob as there is Abraham. So he's a significant figure. God's nation, God's people, we know, are going to be named after him. His 12 sons will be the 12 tribes of Israel. He is referred to at many points hereafter in the biblical witness. Like how many times do you hear, do you read the God of Jacob? A bunch. Well, consider this man. And may it encourage you. None of this that's recorded in God's word is an accident. Abraham, as we've thought about already in this series, is held up as a model of justification by faith. But Jacob is going to function in a similar way. Jacob is paradigmatic of how God saves. 
He is paradigmatic of who God saves. Like what kind of people is God in the business of rescuing and redeeming? Jacob serves as a great model in that regard. He, as we have considered, is a, a jerk, a trickster, a deceiver, a liar, a cheat. At points, a coward. And God saved this man, right? He gave grace to this man. He forgave the sins of this man. He counted righteousness to this man. He worked in this man's life faithfully for years and decades. He never left this man and never quit working in this man. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob and even refers to himself as that. And personally for us, it's like, hey, if God, based on what I know of Jacob, if God can save him, he can save me. If God is not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob, then he isn't ashamed to be called my God either. Along these lines, brothers and sisters, what is it that the scriptures reveal to us about ourselves, about our sin? Think about Jacob. Think about yourself. The scriptures are quite clear that we are far more sinful than we think. Our sin is far worse than we think. It is far uglier and darker and just wicked than we've ever imagined. The scripture is clear that we are far less worthy of any blessing from God than we think we are. The scripture is clear that we deserve wrath and judgment far more than we think we do. The scripture is clear that they're really like for real, really is not anyone good. No one is good. There really isn't anyone who's righteous on his or her own merit. But what is it that the scriptures reveal to us about God and his ways with us? Well, they reveal that if our sin is deeper than we ever knew. The love Faithfulness, mercy, and grace of God are deeper still. That is the testimony of the scripture. The scriptures testify that God's love toward his people is steadfast, meaning it never wavers. It never stops. It's the reason, there's a reason why Lamentations 3 is so beloved by so many people. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The scriptures bear witness that God's faithfulness reaches to the heavens. It's quite clear that as difficult as our lives are this side of the resurrection, there's going to come a day when we will look back and we will know that he's been faithful every moment. The scripture is clear that God's mercy is more than the depth of our sin. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. There is no better news than that. He didn't deal with Jacob as his sins deserved. He does not deal with us 
as our sins deserve. The scriptures testify that God's grace is greater than we have ever fathomed. Not only do we not get what we deserve, that's mercy. We also get all of these wonderful things that we don't deserve. That's grace. What are those things? Well, righteousness, eternal life. Eternal blessedness, an inheritance in a kingdom that can never be shaken. God gives. Emphasis on the word gives. All of those things to wretches like you and me, like Jacob. All of that on account of the descendant of Jacob named Jesus. While we're talking about grace, I like to do this periodically. We're talking about how God's grace is greater than we often fathom or maybe have ever thought. This is just for our benefit to think about these things periodically. People have always gotten tripped up on grace. Grace has always been scandalous. And like real talk, grace terrifies people. It scares people. What do I mean? Well, because of how we think, right, because of how we still think in our natural fallen brains, there's a great irony here. Though we are ruined by sin and none of us are righteous, we still continue to think in terms of merit and punishment before God. We do. So grace scares us. You end up hearing people often when the gospel is preached and we rejoice and herald from the rooftops that Christ has accomplished salvation. Full stop. It's over. It's done. There's nothing left to do. You receive simply by faith what Christ has done. When we preach that. There are people and have always been people that will say, bro, you should not talk like that. It's irresponsible to talk like that. You cannot tell people that it's all over and it's all done because if you do, nobody's going to care about righteousness. Nobody is going to care about good works. Nobody's going to pursue those. Nobody is going to give a rip about obedience if you talk like that. That, saints, is underneath every so-called holiness movement in the history of the church. That objection. It's the question. Okay, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. Should we sin then? Should we sin that grace may abound? If what you're saying is true, you're saying people can just sin. I'm hearing you. That objection is as old as the church. Read Romans. It's as old as the church. How do we respond? Well, we respond like Paul did. In thinking about the scandal of the grace of God, we respond... Should we just sin then? You're saying we should sin? By no means. Why? He doesn't respond with law. He doesn't say by no means because here's all the things you need to do. He doesn't talk like that. He says by no means because we have been united to Christ by faith. Why should we not sin? Because we are united to Jesus now. His death is our death. His death under the law counts as my death. I'm free now. 
from the penalty that I owe the law, the penalty fulfilled in Christ. Satisfaction for sin was made once and for all time. Through union with Christ, his righteousness is now ours. In Christ, it is as though we have kept the whole law because he did. In Christ, it is as though we have perfectly obeyed God our entire lives because he did. And he represents us because we're in him. Union with Christ means that we have been raised to walk in newness of life in him. And his spirit takes up residence and gets to work in us. Why should we not just go on sinning? Because through union with Christ, we've been delivered from the tyranny and the dominion of sin. That's Christian freedom rightly understood. It's kind of frustrating when the only thing we can think of in terms of Christian liberty is like whether or not you send your kids to public school or whether or not you drink alcohol. Christian freedom is freedom from sin and the dominion of the law, man. Why should we not go on sinning? Because we have now in Christ become obedient from the heart. Romans 6, 17. You want to obey now. You didn't before. You now delight in God's law in your inner man. How'd that happen? Union with Christ. How do we respond? Should we just keep sinning? Grace makes me nervous. We say that through union with Christ, we will be conformed to his image and its promise to us. And in the meantime, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, as we rejoiced over earlier today. Should we just go on sinning? By no means. Because the one who began a good work in us will complete it. And he will do it by the Spirit through faith. Not only does grace frighten people, because there's always the fear that grace is going to lead to lawlessness. Grace also, deep down, this might be a little more painful for some of us. Grace deep down can make people angry. In thinking about the grace of God being deeper than we've ever imagined and the grace of God to a wretch named Jacob, people get worked up. Think about the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that one? How upset he was when his brother just went off and blew everything and comes back in town and he gets the robe and the ring and the party. Think about the laborers in the vineyard, right, who worked all day in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? When the people that worked the last hour were paid the same amount, the people who started working first thing in the morning were not okay with it. Why is it that grace makes us angry? Why is it that we bristle? Because in our minds, it's not fair, right? God, you mean that you're going to give eternal life to her? God, you are going to give an inheritance to that guy? For real? See, friends, it makes you angry when from your perspective, God is giving something to others that you think you have earned. Suffice it to say that grace should never make us angry if we see ourselves rightly at all. It's the only hope for sinners. Amen. Suffice it to say that grace shouldn't scare us either. Why? Because the same grace that saves is the same grace that transforms lives. 
We'll call that reflection number one. Let's move on now to the second reflection for our time today. And this is the wrestling with God piece. We'll just call it that, wrestling with God. This is one of those passages in Genesis that's famous, right? It's well known. And even in my mind before the series started, I, it's one of those that you kind of have the pin in it. You know, you know you're going to get there. And I'm even I was like, you know, I don't know what, what exactly that sermon's going to be like. I'm sure it'll be great studying it. I'm sure I'll learn things. But yeah, this one's been on my radar screen, and um, I trust that's understandable. There is so much in this, in this particular passage, where Jacob wrestles with God. And I'm not trying to be punchy or sarcastic or hurt anybody's feelings, but the takeaway from this text is not that we need to go out into the woods or into the field somewhere and just wrestle with God in prayer. That is not the takeaway. By all means, we should pray. Prayer is the outworking of the life of faith. But this text is not about wrestling with God in prayer. There is much here. Let's begin with this. Jacob is changed by this event, is he not? Physically, yeah, but I mean spiritually. This man is changed by this. God, as we've considered, has been working in him for decades already. And at the same time, this night is special. God does something to him. God does something in him. Jacob will leave blessed and he will leave humbled. He will leave knowing that he has met God face to face and survived. He will leave having learned something tremendous about God. Something that I hope we see perhaps for the first time today. At least afresh today. Notice that this whole thing, this wrestling with God moment, who initiated it? God did. God did this. He came down. He showed up. And notice when he does it. It's at this very pointed time in Jacob's life, right? Lots of stress, fear. I mean, moving is hard, you know, they're like caravanning. Terrified of what Esau is going to do. Amidst all kinds of mixed thoughts and feelings and motivations in Jacob. It's at this point that God came and did a significant work in the life of his child. And beloved, he has done that in your life. He's done it in mine. Oh, how he loves us. His faithfulness to us is staggering when we have eyes to see it. His faithfulness to Jacob is staggering in this text. Most significantly, in this text, see in this the nature of the God who saved Jacob. See in this the nature of the God who has saved us. He took on human form. In doing so, he humbled himself. He limited himself. That should sound familiar to you. Philippians 2. He came down and wrestled with Jacob. 
God came down, took on flesh, and wrestled with this man all night in the dirt. He so limited himself that he was not winning. And then in this moment of exercising his divine power, he simply touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint. So don't get it twisted, right? God could have done whatever he wanted to do. He's God. The only reason that he did not destroy Jacob is because that's not what he meant to do. The only reason Jacob could prevail is because God let him. And I assume that Jacob understood something of that. It's clear in how he responds to the situation that he gets something of that. And that alone will change a man. But this, this whole dynamic that I'm describing is all the more astonishing when God gives Jacob a new name. He gives him a name, Israel. Israel means he strives. And God says, God in the flesh says to Jacob that your name will not be Jacob now. It will be Israel because you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So this is big. I'm going to say this twice. Even Jacob's name, Israel, his new name, is forever a reminder that he is who he is. And God's people are who they are because God came down and took on flesh and humbled himself and willingly lost. I'll say this again. Even Jacob's name, Israel, is forever a reminder that he is who he is and God's people are who they are because God came down and took on flesh and willingly lost. Saints, this is our God. He willingly left the glories of heaven and humbled himself by taking on human form. He was born a helpless baby. The God who made the world. He subjected himself to all the things that we go through. He limited himself so as to experience this life as a man. He was perfected through suffering, Hebrews tells us. He walked the earth he had made. He ate and drank. He worked and slept. He laughed and cried. He obeyed the law perfectly. And he obeyed it always. He was mocked and ridiculed and blasphemed. And then, at the right time, he willingly lost so that he might give us the victory. He let himself be killed so that we might have life. So that all who trust in him would be forgiven of sins, absolved of guilt, declared righteous, and raised from the grave. He is the one. The one who wrestled with Jacob is the one who said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I what lay down my life for the sheep. 
For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. There is no one like Jesus. This God who would come down and humble and limit himself in human form and willingly lose to save his people. That is ultimately what this Jacob wrestling with God bit is about. Jesus is worthy to receive honor and glory and praise forever. And as the song goes, oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves you and me. And beloved, we can trust him. Just a final like pastoral comment, sort of bringing back around the comments about grace and obedience and union with Christ and all that. As you consider Jesus these ways, what he's done for you, if there's a better motivator in all the world to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness, I don't know what it is. And with that, let's close in prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to call you that. We ask that you would be gracious to sinners like us, we pray that you would give us faith that we might trust your son. We pray that you would give us mercy for our sins. Take away the shame and the guilt that so many carry around with them, with us this morning. Lord, remind us of everything that Christ has accomplished. Remind us of what it means to be united to him, that everything that is his is ours. Stir us up with love and affection for Christ, stir us up with love toward our neighbor. And may we do good works for your honor and for the good of all those who are in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.